This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, Alberta. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this uh, Tuesday afternoon. Thanks for joining us uh, for this hour. We'll have some time for your phone calls uh, coming up. You can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. In Calgary, 403-974-8255. Talking more about the UCP leadership race, the party today has unveiled the timeline, the rules for this race. It will all culminate on October 6th, at which point a new party leader and a new premier will be crowned. Uh, so the entrants or would-be entrants in this race have a better understanding of how this is all going to work, uh, the kinds of hurdles they need to clear just to be official candidates in the first place. July 20th is the cutoff. So already starting to see uh, a crowded and I think a competitive field in this race. And uh, joining us off the top in this hour is one of the declared candidates. Uh, joining us on the line is the MLA for Calgary Northeast, now former uh, Minister of Transportation, Rajan Sani. Joining us on the line here this afternoon, Masani, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, good afternoon. I'm delighted to be joining the program today. Well, we'll talk about your campaign, your decision to enter this race. Let me get your thoughts now. Uh, you know, the candidates have all seen what the party put out today in terms of the timeline, the rules for this race. Uh, your thoughts on that, first of all? Yes, the rules did come out today, so I had a chance to briefly discuss uh, all the rules with my team and look at them myself. And we're happy so far with the rules, and uh, we are looking forward to kicking off our campaign and getting started and uh, just talking to Albertans about what we need to do as we move forward. So uh, we will have a further discussion about the rules and, you know, just understand them in more detail. Yeah. But certainly um, at first glance and with some conversations, we, we are fine and we are ready to go. All right. So you, you can work with within these rules. This all seems reasonable and, and fair as far as you can see at this point. At this point, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. As I said, you know, they just came out this morning and everything that we've looked at in this short period of time from this morning till now indicates that we can definitely work within what has been, sorry about that, with what has been presented. And we're looking forward to, to moving moving forward. Obviously, you know, for, for all, all the candidates, it's, it's a big decision to make. And I know it's one you, you took your time with. Uh, so sort of walk us through that process, what was going through your mind and, and why ultimately you felt it was important to, to join this race. Well, thank you for that question, because uh, it's been posed to me many times. I wanted to be really thoughtful and conscientious about making this decision. Obviously, I have uh, my family to consider. I've got young kids still. I have older children as well. And I also wanted to consult with my constituency, people in Calgary Northeast. And certainly I wanted to really understand what I was hearing from Albertans across the province in terms of what they were looking for and, uh, and distill that into what leadership looks like. So I also had an excellent portfolio I was working in and there were a number of projects that I needed to wrap up. 
I would have felt terrible if I left them hanging midway. And all of these factors kind of combined in me taking about two weeks to really take this decision under thoughtful consideration. And ultimately, it did come down to my family and it did come down to what I can offer vis-a-vis the other candidates. And, uh, and that was also another consideration. Who else is running at this point? Who has put their name forward? Who is potentially putting their name forward? Is there anybody that I can get behind? And if not, then what is my decision at that point? So obviously my decision is, is that I feel I am best suited to become the leader of the United Conservative Party. And I was really thrilled to launch my campaign yesterday. I mean, it's an interesting moment for the party. And I mean, you know, the circumstances that precipitated this race would speak to some some trouble for the party, maybe uh, a loss of faith or trust on, on the part of Albertans. So it's an opportunity to, to reconnect or, or to try to rebuild that trust and that relationship with Albertans. From your perspective, why is the party in this position? What What's needed going forward? What's needed from a new leader? So you nailed it when you said that there has been a loss of faith and trust, and there have been a number of reasons as to why that has happened. Certainly our uh, leadership um, has been accused of not listening and not, um, you know, really sitting down with Albertans from all walks of life and hearing their perspectives. And there has been some labeling and stereotyping and name calling, quite frankly, that has gone on that has really eroded uh, trust within the party. And and I think as we move forward, and I will say that word over and over again, because you, you really can't go backwards. We have to think about how we're going to rebuild uh, because Albertans deserve that. So it's all about moving forward. People want to see somebody that they can trust. People want to see somebody that they can look up to who has a track record of success in their past, who understands the business world, who understands different communities, and somebody who's approachable and has demonstrated that they can listen and has demonstrated that they have the best interests of Albertans at heart and no other vested interests. These are comments that I've heard over and over again from Albertans, again, all over all over the province and from different walks of life. And I really reflected on these conversations and that's what it comes down to. It comes down to trust. Who can we trust and who has demonstrated that they can be trustworthy? Obviously, you you were at the cabinet table. You were transportation minister, uh, and 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 that meant obviously having some responsibility, and as you say, overseeing some some important initiatives. But uh, you know, it's also at the cabinet table where decisions are are made. You, you've made some references to you know sort of the inner cabinet, and you know that, that maybe there there's some some tears, I suppose, when it comes to to cabinet or the relevance of certain ministers. What, what did you mean by that? First of all, the the inner cabinet and the decision making. Well, there is a full cabinet, and certainly in the last year and a half, there was a priorities and implementation cabinet committee, and that is where most of the government decisions were going through, and that was also the committee that made most of the COVID decisions as well. I was not a part of that. I was a part of EMCC, which was involved in the early COVID response, and I'm very proud of the work that I did when I was on that committee in terms of providing support to vulnerable communities. But uh, that is what it came down to. And certainly our caucus will also um, talk about the fact that, you know, all decisions were basically made by a handful 
of ministers, and I was honored to be on cabinet, and every now and then we would convene, but yes, there was that inner cabinet committee that convened on major government decisions. And, uh, and I think as we move forward, we really need to have some transparency and accountability within government on how these decisions are made. So that's what I was referring to at that time, and I know certainly that a, a government led by me would, would really fight to ensure that we had transparency and accountability at all times. Uh, one of the promises you made already is uh, an interesting one, to, to hold a public inquiry into Alberta's uh, COVID response. So maybe elaborate on that if, if you could. What, why you think that's, that's needed and, and what that would look at specifically? I believe it's needed because, again, I have heard of diverse opinions uh, around the COVID response from all sectors of the economy, from all different uh, demographics, from different parts of the province. And the opinions on the COVID uh, response are quite diverse. And uh, that's why I was honoured to have uh, MLA Angela Pitt as my campaign chair uh, join me yesterday at my launch because... She and I um, don't agree on many different aspects and even on some aspects, obviously, around COVID. And it became very apparent that we need to have the opportunity to have all the evidence, all of the data, all of the um, elements related to decision making around the COVID response laid out in a transparent fashion for Albertans to see so that they can actually formulate their own opinions as to what went right and what went wrong. And the only way to really do that is to have a public inquiry and to ensure that all voices who are vested in this conversation have an opportunity to speak. Um, We have to make sure that we have physicians and healthcare workers there at the table to give their perspective. And of course, anybody else who has a, um, a stake in this conversation. It's important for Albertans as we move forward to really understand what was done behind the scenes, what data and evidence was used, and how we're going to learn from any of the mistakes that were made and uh, the things that were done right. How do we move forward and make sure that those pieces of policy are in place? And this public inquiry is also going to be very important to help rebuild our our healthcare system because obviously we know that we didn't have enough ICU beds and there are lots of issues around that but there's also other aspects of healthcare that need to be improved upon and the results of this inquiry will help inform that effort. All right, well, we'll leave it there for now. Much more at uh, rajansani.ca. And um, we now know October 6th is when this race culminates. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity between now and then to discuss these and other issues. But do appreciate making some, t- some time for us here this afternoon. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, would love to speak to you again sometime in the future. Thank you very All much. Right. All the best, Rajan. Take care. Okay. Uh, Rajan Sani, uh, UCP leadership candidate, is the MLA for Calgary Northeast. And uh, up until this week was the transportation minister, obviously, uh, needed to uh, resign that position in order to run in this race. Uh, so she's entered the race. Also declaring today is Rebecca Schultz, uh, another cabinet minister who has uh, stepped down from that position. Rebecca Schultz, as of today, also in the race. So now those those are two candidates, both from Calgary. Rebecca Schultz is the MLA for Calgary. Shaw, as mentioned, Rajansani is the MLA for Calgary Northeast. Otherwise, all the other declared candidates are from outside either Edmonton or Calgary. Is there likely to be an Edmonton candidate in this race? 
Uh, I can think of one prominent Edmonton conservative whose name has been bandied about as both a potential federal conservative leader and provincial, that being Ronna Ambrose. Uh, But it doesn't appear as though she's likely to join this race. Uh, But as Rick Bell noted in his uh, Calgary Sun column today, uh, that Ronna Ambrose's name may still come up, uh, that some uh, inside chatter, as Rick says, is that uh, Schultz may be uh, trotting out both Brad Wall and Ronna Ambrose uh, to endorse her in her campaign. That would be an interesting uh, addition. Those are two pretty big names in Alberta. Even though Brad Wall was the premier of Saskatchewan, I think he has a lot of resonance uh, with conservatives in this province, same with uh, with Ronna Ambrose. So that could be a big coup for Rebecca Schultz. We'll see how that all plays out. I know she's going to be on with Shay Gannam tomorrow morning uh, to talk about her entry into the race. And who else might we see? There's been uh, numerous uh, rumors and lots of speculation around Michelle Rempel-Garner, the Calgary uh, MP, that she's been considering entering this race, and that maybe she was waiting to see what the rules of the game were, and maybe some of the candidates too. So those rules came out today. Uh, So the cutoff is July 20th. The race will culminate on October 6th. That's when the new leader will be announced. Uh, There's a big bar to clear. Candidates must put up a non-refundable entry fee of $150,000. Now, they can pay that in three installments, but that's still, that's a lot of money to gather just to be in the race, let alone the fundraising you're going to have to do to run this race. Now, that's a long race, so that that requires uh, a pretty effective fundraising machine. $150,000 entry fee, $25,000 deposit. That's essentially a good behavior deposit. You'll get it back as long as you follow the rules. These will be preferential ballots. So second place choices, all of that could be a big factor. There will be uh, both a mail-in component and an in-person component. There'll be five locations set up across the province for in-person voting. So that was uh, announced by the party today. You heard the reaction from uh, Rajan Sani. And... um, yeah, there's, there's where things are at. July 20th is the official cutoff. So I guess for all intents and purposes, now this race is underway. That's what it's going to look like. Your thoughts on what you heard from Rajan Sani, your thoughts on who's in or not in this race as of yet, of what you think this party needs. What do you think Alberta needs in a new premier? Where did things go wrong for the outgoing premier? <laughs> on June 20th, our government will suspend the requirement to be vaccinated in order to board a plane or train in Canada. There was the announcement today. Federal Minister of Transport Omar Al-Gabra announcing that the vaccine mandate for travelers is suspended. With an important caveat, uh, any traveler entering Canada is still required to be vaccinated. So if you are an unvaccinated Canadian uh, traveling abroad, you would be required to quarantine upon arrival back in Canada. Of course, you still have to be vaccinated to enter the U.S., so that would obviously be a travel elsewhere. Uh, but that announced today, also announced today, the federal government is uh, suspending the vaccine mandate for federal workers, federally regulated workers. Now, the government says this has nothing to do with the delays at airports, but which is maybe true, maybe not. Uh, certainly, I think there's been some concern that maybe some workers have been kept out of the mix because of those mandates, and maybe that's contributed to some of the delays we've been hearing about. Uh, nonetheless, the government says this is not motivated by that, that they are merely following the science, they say. This is Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc. This announcement is not about shortening 
wait times that are currently being experienced at some of Canada's airports. As you know, these wait times are mainly caused by staffing shortages. The adjustments we're making today are based on science, and they will not have an impact immediately on these airport delays. We remain committed to reducing the wait times at Canada's airport. We have already taken a number of steps to improve this situation. All right. So our next guest, uh, you know, has, has been on record for a few months now saying that it was it was time to change these rules. They no longer made sense that keeping them in place could actually have the effect of undermining confidence in public health. Well, joining us to talk more about today's announcement, very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Zane Chagla, an infectious disease physician and associate professor of medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Chagla, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. As I said, I mean, you wrote about this a few months ago. I know I spoke to you a few months ago about this, that, that you were suggesting it was time to, to end these mandates. Why, why do you think it took so long, first of all? Um, I don't know, to be fair. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I think, you know, I've been talking about this for some time, uh, you know, even potentially with domestic travel where, you know, it's even less of an issue. But I think when we recognize that vaccinations do a great job at preventing people from getting sick and there's definitely reasons for people to get vaccinated. Um, you know, the, the fact that Omicron reduced the, the ability for the vaccine to prevent symptomatic disease um, really then put the writing on the wall that most vaccine mandates should be stopped. And I think most provinces took this in, into heart when they stopped everything in February, March and April. I just don't quite understand why it's June 14th and we're talking about, uh, you know, changes that are happening on June 20th. Yeah, in in terms of why now, it, it was it was hard to gleam an answer from from that news conference today. But you know, in in terms of overall public health, and you know, certainly there there was a need to encourage vaccine uptake. I, I think certainly at a, at a point in time, there was a strong case to be made for vaccine mandates. But mm-hmm. it did seem like we got past that, as you alluded to. So, from a perspective of public health, why is it important to to ease or end measures if if they no longer make sense? It's trust, right? Like, you know, we we went into this pandemic with the trust that our governments would put measures in place that would help prevent disease from spreading in our communities, that would keep us safe, et cetera. But that trust is two ways. There has to be a trust to say when things get better, when the evidence changes, that these measures get pulled away. And they're not done, you know, with months and months of deliberation. They're done in days, especially when they affect people's freedoms. You know, people cannot go to a funeral in in Vancouver from Toronto because of the fact they don't have a vaccine. Well, you know, if really the the impetus here is not there, the evidence behind it is not there, then we have to really allow for people to do that and and sooner rather than later. And uh, yeah, I mean, as this pandemic goes forward, we really, really need trust. And, and, you know, things like this don't help with maintaining that in the population. Well, further to that, what do you make uh, of the fact that even though these these mandates are lifting, that there is still a quarantine and testing requirement for any Canadians returning to the country after traveling abroad? Yeah, look, I, I think I understand the justification here in the context that a foreign national who would come to Canada needs a vaccine, so they wouldn't be able to even come to Canada without a vaccine. Right. Uh, because of the fact that if they were to get sick here, they would then need a healthcare bed. That's a cost to the system. 
they maybe not be able to pay for that, uh, and there may be implications, which is not unfair, although, you know, places like Israel have basically said, fine, you're allowed to come in with no requirement, but you have to show us proof that you can cover your health care costs if you got COVID. I think it's not an unreasonable solution. But the quarantine for Canadians is a little bit strange. Look, you know, if we're going to start quarantining people in Canada, again, in Ontario, where we're residing, if I get exposed to COVID, I'm unvaccinated, uh, you know, from the community, I don't have to quarantine. I have to watch my symptoms, wear a mask, avoid high-risk settings. You know, I don't quite understand why someone who got off a plane has to do 14 days of home quarantine, undergo multiple tests, you know, for the this, for probably less impact than actually me seeing someone that's had COVID. And so, you know, that part doesn't really add up. It's, you know, introducing inconvenience. As we're talking about border measures, you know, they're, they're and then timing, you know, having border guards now have to look through people and their quarantine plans because those people can come back to Canada more easily. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that's going to necessarily help with what's happening at the border. And, and again, there's there's not really any benefits from this in the context that they're able to access healthcare, they're able to access therapeutics, they're able to access testing in their community like every other Canadian should be able to. Right, and this all requires resources, right, and money. And, and maybe that money, those resources are, are better spent elsewhere. Absolutely. Look, Again, there's work to make sure people get vaccinated. As more vaccines come to the market, there's work to, to make sure that the education is there in communities of why. There's work to reach some of the highest risk people that haven't gotten their third doses to make them understand why three doses may be better than two in, in higher risk individuals. There's work to make sure that we have therapeutics out there. There's work to make sure we can reinforce the healthcare system. You know, there's so much of that that, that, that can go around. There's so much effort that can go around to make this more sustainable rather than again, nitpicking exactly what happens at the border and recognizing that, you know, again, the border is going to need to remain open. People will need to travel. And that's the reality of this, that that we live in a world where we should be connected to others and, and need to be able to come in and out of the country as needed. Now, the federal government did say that the mask mandate uh, for travel is going to remain in place. So that that's not something that precludes anybody from traveling. It's easy mm-hmm. enough to put on a mask, although there may still be some, some grumbling about that. But, I mean, does, does that still make sense in your view to keep that in place? Yeah, look, let's, I agree. Let's, you know, it's a soft-touch measure. It's reasonable to do. You know, there could be some permissiveness, though, particularly in the air when people are already taking off their masks to eat and drink and the ventilation right. systems are running. Probably you could work on pieces to make it more comfortable to travel while still getting the benefits of masks at the highest risk points. Um, and nothing is saying that. But, you know, again, I would suggest that all these things need to be looked at long-term, right? And, and again, mm-hmm. we do know that masking appropriately in the right setting does offer a significant amount of personal protection. And it's, again, you know, the, the, the long-term strategy here is probably how many layers of personal protection do people want as part of living their lives? And it's the way we live with other diseases yeah. in that sense. And, and so it should be the way we live with COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Appreciate your insight on all this, Dr. Chaka. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. No problem. All the best. All the best. Uh, that's Dr. Zane Jagla at uh, McMaster University, infectious disease physician. So, um, you know, look, you know, he made the case. He wrote it uh, in an op-ed uh, a few months ago uh, that it was time to to end these mandates. They didn't make sense anymore. You know, at a time when you got uh, NHL arenas across the country packed with people, there's no longer any proof of, of vaccination required. What's the point of, of having this for travelers? What, what is it accomplishing at this point? So I think when you look at it in that sense, okay, here's a rule that's not really accomplishing anything, A, 
and, and B, further to the point he makes, that it undermines confidence in public health measures. And, and that can have some long-term damage. Welcome back. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Rob Breckenridge with you. Much more still to get to here this afternoon. We'll get back to your phone calls and your texts. But let's turn our attention to the topic of artificial intelligence. Uh, and certainly a topic that's making headlines this week because of a claim made by a, an engineer at Google. Now, this is somebody who's not a nobody in the company. Uh, he's a senior software engineer in Google's responsible AI organization. And he has made a quite remarkable claim that Lambda, Google's AI chatbot program, language model for dialogue applications, is sentient. And this is based on his own basically conversations with the program. That's what it's designed to do. It's, it's a chatbot, essentially. So, like I say, it's, it's a claim that has uh, raised a lot of eyebrows, garnered a lot of attention uh, around the world, and I suppose one that should be taken seriously. I mean, that would obviously be quite a th threshold to cross. But joining us to talk a bit more about this claim, how much stock we put in this, and even that, that basic question of how would we know if an artificial intelligence program had become sentient or self-aware. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Melanie Mitchell, uh, Davis Professor of the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico, author of the book, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. Professor Mitchell, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. All right. So, I mean, you've been watching all of this, the, the claim, the attention it's received, and, and uh, a lot of talk, a lot of speculation by a whole lot of people who maybe don't fully understand artificial intelligence. What, what have you made of this frenzy, first of all, just in, in recent days here? Well, uh, the, the idea that a chatbot is sentient is nothing new. We've heard this many times before with different AI chatbots going back even to the 1960s, people are very uh, prone to uh, interpret human-sounding language as coming from a sentient being. And this is no different from that. It's very clear to AI experts that the chatbot is not sentient in any meaningful sense of the word, and but that humans can easily be fooled and be... Uh, taken in by clever-sounding chatbots. And, and so based on what you've seen and heard, that, that seems the, the most likely explanation here? It's the only possible explanation. It's very yeah. clear to myself, other AI experts, and even people at Google who were involved in building this system, that there is no sentience there. The system is very fluent and can sound very much like a human-generating conversation, but it is only dealing with words. It's not dealing with concepts or ideas or any sense of self or other people. So it can fool people very easily. Mm -hmm. uh, the reaction to all of this, as I said, has been considerable. And maybe that's because uh, maybe this is a fear uh, people have, that we don't fully understand this technology. We're worried about crossing some, some threshold that there's no coming back from. Do you think that explains just all of the, the fascination in, uh, around this story? Yeah, I think that's completely right. People are afraid. They don't understand how these systems work. And they worry about the conflicting stories they hear about AI, you know, people mm -hmm. even in big companies claiming that their their AI systems are intelligent, that they're understanding language, that they're better in hum than humans in many ways. And there's just been a lot of hype around the subject of AI and not a lot of very kind of 
insightful, clear explanations of how these systems actually work and what they can do. But as you, as you say, a, a well-designed program or system can, can almost at some level seem sentient or self-aware. Do we have criteria in place? Do we have a, a set system or measurement where we could make that determination if we're ever uncertain? Unfortunately, no. I mean, the, the notion of self-awareness or sentience is not well-defined. We can't even decide among ourselves whether certain animals are sentient and self-aware. That's been controversial in the scientific world. And so there's no clear-cut test that we can apply. But I think in some cases, at least, like this one, we can definitively say that a system is not self-aware. That doesn't mean that AI systems will never be self-aware. It's certainly possible to create such systems, although we don't know how to do it right now. But but it's something that people should have in mind and think about when thinking about the future of artificial intelligence. But I would say we're quite far away right now from the ability to do that. I mean, what would be a red flag? Uh, you know, for example, are we talking about programs that that experience emotion or, or, or what beyond simply what they're they're saying, like in this case, the, the words aren't enough to reach that conclusion, but what might be? I would say if the system can interact with the real world and can um, convince experts, people who know something about intelligence in general, that it is intelligent then, um, and that it's understanding and that it's self-aware, that would be certainly a red flag. But I don't. I think that it's you know one of the big challenges of AI is is figuring out exactly what these red flags are. I think we know that we're not there yet, but we really don't know for the future exactly how to evaluate such claims. Which makes it a challenge in terms then of of maybe putting limits in place or or sort of you know this this is a no go zone or we don't cross this line if we're not even sure how to get there or what there looks like. How do we how do we prevent it from happening? <laughs> well, that's a great question. I, but, you know, I think that there's more short-term short issues that are even more pressing than that, which is how do we deal with these bots that are able to fool us so easily, not only mm -hmm. in language, but also in creating images, creating uh, videos, audio, and so on. We've seen these deep fakes that mm -hmm. are very convincing pictures of faces and many other kinds of digital creations that are hard to distinguish from human created uh, content. So I think this is the big the big issue right now is how do we prevent systems from fooling us rather than worrying so much about sentient AI, which I think is not a short term uh, concern. Well, it's interesting, you know, the, the progress that's being made in that, and maybe we're not all fully aware of just the leaps and bounds here, but I was mentioning earlier, you know, this, this Dolly program that's, you know, available to the public and everyone's having fun, uh, you know, typing in prompts and asking this AI to, to conjure up all of these, these images. And, you know, it's, it's, it's good for some, some laughs and some chuckles, but it is remarkable to take a step back and think about just how far all of this has come, right? Yeah, the, the AI has come very far, particularly because it has so much data to work with, so much human-created data, all the images, 
and text that people have put on the internet, how the digitized books and stock photos and so on are the inputs to these programs, are the way these programs learn to create very convincing images and text. So it's really the, the, it, it's standing on human-created data in, in scales never before seen. So that's really the source of all this progress in AI. There is. And as you alluded to, I mean, there, there's, there's plenty of downside uh, to this, this kind of technology, technology that can essentially fool us. But obviously, there's also a lot of upsides, a lot of potential benefit to humanity uh, of harnessing this technology and this tool. So what's needed to ensure it's, it's more of the latter and, and less of the former? I, that's a big question. But, you know, I think that there has to be some regulation on the uses of AI and the transparency with which these systems come. We have to be able to understand how they're making their decisions and you know what kinds of biases they might have and to be very transparent with uh, users about what these systems can and cannot do. Very interesting. As mentioned, the book is called Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. Much more to your website. It's melanymitchell.me. Professor Mitchell, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for having me. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Melanie Mitchell, Davis Professor at the Santa Fe Institute, author of the book Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. Uh, more about her in the book at MelodyMitchell.me. So there's an expert who says, look, this, this program is not sentient. Let's, let's put that notion to rest. And it is easy for humans to be fooled, even those who are trained in this field. A well-designed program, this, in this case, a, a program that's designed as a chatbot, is going to seem convincing in its ability to respond to, to what you're saying, et cetera. So there's, and look, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the final word necessarily, but that seems to be the consensus so far from what I've been reading from, from various experts in this field is that this Google engineer is incorrect. He's wrong. Uh, so let's, I guess for now, maybe hope that that's the case, and, and we'll see what more Google has to say about it. This engineer, by the way, has been placed on leave by the company. Uh, but uh, this guy, his name is um, Lemoyne, is his last name. Uh, Blake Lemoyne is his first name, a senior software engineer in Google's responsible AI unit. Uh, so we wrote a, a post on the website Medium outlining all of this and you know, this was picked up by some new sites and, and it kind of caught fire from there which is a big question obviously look that that is a, a threshold from which there is no coming back once we we cross that line then we're in that world and we need to to navigate it and figure out what that all means so i think that's why this has received so much attention like holy crap did that just happen and none of us really noticed and it's this whistleblower at, at google who's who's blown the lid off this or is this just somebody who's interacting with the program and just is, is over-interpreting it or over-interpreting it? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.